When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. See that you're born in Italian. You want your life to be great. From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino. Then to make you roly poly, you get stuffed with ravioli. Your mama's a paisano. We'll have the world on a plate. So sweet that you're born in Italian. Okay, hello again out there in Italian America. We are back with another episode of the Italian American Power Hour. I am your host and moderator, a man who my own family describes as a living neighborhood stoop, uh, John Viola. And, well, one of our panelists today has announced herself with that familiar laugh that we all love. She is one of the co-founders of the original Italian American podcast, and we're really glad to have her back around the table today, Dolores Alfieri Taranto. Uh, I'm also joined by uh, my co-host, the notorious P.O.B., the professor himself, Mr. Pat O'Boyle. That's kind. That's a very kind introduction. Well, thank you very, very much. Very much appreciate. If you thank actually you. let him do the introduction, yeah, it's good. Uh, then you can talk. hear the kind things he says. I say, I say nice things about you. <laughs> Go talk. ahead, put me on mute. You can mute me. <laughs> Why so you hold up like a conch shell whenever you want to mute me? A conch shell? Like the conch shell? Like was that? Was that? What was? Book was that that we had? Lord of the Flies. You can hold the mighty not a jar. Yeah, hold the mighty not a jar. You're gonna hold the mighty not a jar. When I'm allowed, when I'm allowed to speak, you can lift it, and that'll be symbolic that I can speak. There's only three of us here today, so it, it should be a little more. It should be a little orderly. Quieter. Yeah, and it's a good thing that it's quieter today because <laughs> since we have our resident college professor here today, and it is officially Italian American Heritage Month, October, as we record this, we all thought that it would be a really great opportunity to sort of set the table for our entire project here. So on the 70-some-odd episodes of the Italian-American podcast and the handful of episodes on the Italian-American Power Hour that have come out, we've taken these deep dives into really specific stuff. And I think now a good chance to open up for new listeners or even for our longtime listeners uh, what we're calling the Italian-American History Masterclass. So this is our version in, in four parts of that's Italian a American strong, history. That's a strong proposition. Yeah. I don't know what masterclass that's a, really means. That's, so. a, that's a strong... What would you call it? I don't know. I always get intimidated by these subjects because we, we do not have... Well, you have an anthropology degree. Yes. But and sociology. And sociology yeah. degree. I do not have a degree that would qualify me. I have a minor in history, I think, from undergrad. But I don't have a, a specified Italian-American studies degree. That would give us the academic credentials to be able to say, am I getting too technical? No, you're right. I mean, this is not a master class. So I'm sure there's somebody out there who's saying, well, who are they? So I think there's a caveat there that this is a, we are self-taught masters. And if if we are masters, it's self-taught. This is the amateur master class. This is the amateur passion master class. What we're trying to achieve today and in these four episodes that uh, you're going to get over the course of the next few weeks is a human telling. A power hour version telling broad stroke of some really interesting, really interesting stories, really interesting trends, and really maybe a different version of Italian American. But we have a very, I feel that we take account to an extent of ourselves, of the contributions that we've made, especially in business. To an extent. To an extent. But I think that just the cultural contributions that we've made, there is no no recognition in greater American society for what we've accomplished, what we've added to the, to the American experience. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think for, for this, like the purpose for, for these episodes to me was not to do like a hang a star on our accomplishments chronology of all the great Italian Americans. You couldn't do that in four episodes. You couldn't do it in 400 episodes. And that's really not the point. The, the point is to cover... Um, the story that brought us here, because when, when I started thinking about what the power hour was in complement to the podcast, the idea was like, you know, the, the podcast is these great 
stories about the trends, the people. It's got um, deep dives on certain people, their lives, their their accomplishments, different subjects. And the Power Hour was, was always designed to be like us examining ourselves in questions. And so I figured as we do that with the audience, we should provide for them what we think of as the important pillars of Italian-American history that we reference back. That's a great, but you know, I think that's the great point with that is that think by acknowledging the fact that we are amateur, we are self-taught masters, these class, this, this program rather should be a, a vehicle that encourages people to do independent reading. Yeah. And to go on Amazon or to go to the local library and to buy the books that were written by Italian-American academics, which in-depth tell the history of Italian-America, yeah. of, of, Italian, of, of those people who deserve a place in the Hall of Fame. Maybe take what we have to say, go out and get those books, read those books, and self-educate yourself because the story is incredible. And, and it's, it, there's no hyperbole in that at all. Yeah, this is like uh, – my one of my favorite authors is a guy named John Julius Norwich. He wrote one of my favorite books on Italian history, which is his two-part history of the Kingdom of Sicily. And he is not a historian, and he always says in every introduction of every book he writes, and he's written like the definitive histories of uh, the Byzantine Empire and Venice and all this uh, different histories. And he always says, I'm not a historian. There's much better stuff out there for the academic, but what I love to do is tell the story of history. I'm a storyteller. And I think we're all storytellers. That's, yeah. that's a great point. Yeah. That's so what I was going to, that's where I was going to take to balance out the academics that Pat, you know, and, and I, that's why this works great because Pat has that rigorous standard and you, and you also bring that, I think you undersell how much of a professor and, you know, your credentials that you have. Thank you, Dolores. That true. was very nice. Of you. But Thank for you. me, I think, you know, just from a storytelling sense, which is I, I do actually a lot of research and reading on this. I'm, I am working on another book about this, which is. You need to know your history, and that's kind of like a tagline, right? Know your history, but why? Why do you need to know where you come from? And there is actual research that, you know, children who know their family stories, which is a way children who know their personal history are more confident. They're more uh, emotionally, have more control of their emotions. They're just, they're better developed. And I know from my own experience growing up that that's what I had. I knew where I came from. We had a family narrative. My parents were immigrants. They struggled. They, they failed. They succeeded. We are the next phase of that story. And I live with that. And I've always lived with it. And it's not a burden. It gives me purpose. And it gives me a sense of place in the world. So just take that personal history, you know, and you make it larger. Yeah. And you need to know these things about your people. And you say, oh, my grandparents were from Italy or my great grandparents. But, you know, you need to know what was in their blood and their emotions and what drove them because that's still in you. But also, if I may, why I get passionate about this is that they 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 called Italians Guinea and Dago and Wap, and they condescended to the architects of Western civilization. You know, even even the Italian peasant. Brought something that was contributory to, to, to the American, to, to America, right. to the country. And what we've added to the mosaic, if you have somebody like Frank Capra, like a movie maker, you know, um, do people consider him an Italian? Do people see that the, the artistic, the artistic contribution of Frank Capra to, to American cinema, cinematographic history? They're the same people that they called their parents Dagos, Guineas, and Wops. I know you and I, John, personally discuss all the time, which, the, which really enrages me. And upsets me is the what was it Life magazine, Look magazine's Life. treatment of Joe DiMaggio yeah. in the 1930s. It was yeah. horrific. I mean, um, what did they say about? Demi- we referenced this in our last episode. Actually, we were talking about Italian American products. Our last Power Hour episode, and uh, they basically talk about how DiMaggio is different than his compatriots. He doesn't require a bowl of pasta to start the day, and he doesn't reek of oil, a garlic, and oh, you know, snap. Yeah, and his favorite <laughs> food is Chinese food. Yeah, he's and and yeah. and the reason I reiterate this is that. In a time of um, where America's looking back at some of the treatment of different Americans, where are the Italian Americans in that narrative? Mm-hmm. You know, so people are saying, you know, we didn't treat certain groups correctly, and 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 a lot of you know, there's a lot in that discussion. But where are the where are the Italian Americans placed in that conversation? And that, that's part of the reason I wanted to do these because, like, uh, look, we're we're blessed and we love you all to have um, a lot of amazing listeners out there who interact with us and react to the episodes and have self 
referential stories about how these things affected them. And uh, there's a great audience and a hunger for what we're talking about here. So we have this self-identified community. But I'm always surprised when I go out into that community how few people have a sense of the story of Italian-American history from a more complete perspective. Like, one of the reasons I think sometimes we don't look back at our past and the difficulties of our experiences because we don't know it because – not because we're, we're ignorant or, or not interested. We are kind of a community that puts its head down and works through struggle. We're not the raise yourself up and scream and complain. It's like work hard and things will go well. So in that, you don't often get the retelling of the group history, of the social history of who we are. You know, And if you ask an average Italian-American, I think they have a very broad stroke. Like you know, we came as immigrants. We struggled. It was hard. We paved the streets. And then, you know, after the war, we got successful. Like, it, it, it's not filled in. And and not just forget the value it brings to our people, the value it brings to this project and the shows and the audience. It's really interesting stuff. I mean, the stories we're going to talk about here, we're, you know, again, forgive us that this is not a complete history uh, from an academic perspective that would take years uh, and is worthy uh, as a topic. But this is more like the interesting bellwethers and trends, I think, and the sort of social telling of less the luminaries and more the people and more sort of what all of us went through. I mean, we will reference some of the amazing luminaries, but what, but in, in what they meant to us, not right. what their story was. Right. And I think that right. that's important. Meaning what they meant to our development exactly. as Italian Americans yeah. and our, our unfolding story that exactly. continues to unfold. Yeah. yeah. We're yeah. going to look at them through the lens of the wider community and what they signified for the yeah. wider community. And I think that that's a good way to do it. So I guess this is an amateur social story about who we are. And so for those of you who are looking for a more academic product, please forgive us, but I think everybody's going to enjoy it. And the way we're going to do it is in four parts. So just to give everybody an overview, this episode that you're listening to now is called Before We Were Italians. It's from 1492, obviously the year that Columbus discovers America. This is way too structured for us. I was actually well, just going to say, that's a I great mean, I, title. I, well done. I, no, you can say that. <laughs> no, no, listen, don't, don't take it, just a job. I'll take it personally. It's it's my issue, not yours. Yes, but you got to work for me on this one. And I, I, I got to be the moderator the and be structured. So, th- <laughs> so this episode is going to take us from 1492, when Columbus discovers America, through 1890, when at the sort of real mass immigration, and and that's kind of the, yeah, the that, forgotten true. point in Italian American history, right? Most people don't talk about our yeah. fingerprints on this country and continent before we came in in big numbers. The second episode, uh, which you're going to get after this one is called Italians in America, 1890 to 1941. And that sort of covers, obviously, a, a lot of important history, the two world wars or the, or the coming of the Second World War, but also that period when we were here in huge numbers and clearly a significant population, but not yet Americans. We, we were sort of a, a standalone group. The third episode uh, is titled Americans of Italian Descent, 1941 to Present. And that's sort of the World War II and the experience there, which was so transformational to our people in this country, and the years after, leading up to today, when we have become sort of integrated and, and assimilated Americans and what that uh, experience was. And then the final episode, to recap, to sort of bring some academic into this, is going to be our great Italian-American reading list. And so we'll share with you guys uh, everything that we've all devoured and read over the years uh, and our favorites and why to bring us to be able to tell this story so you can then go and really get the professional version of this. Because... There's so many great books out there about our story, about Italy, and unfortunately, it's not a real central place that people can find them. So this is our way of sort of opening. You know what I had always dreamed to do? I think Seton Hall is doing something different. Um, my alma mater, they have a, an Italian book collection, but I had always hoped that there would be one main academic library that would have all the self-published Italian American books. And there's so many good ones. And there's so many because every Italian, you know, it's the family story. And there's so many of them out there. You could spend the rest of your life reading a book every two or three days and you wouldn't get through them all. I mean, if we if we could bring the discipline to the project, uh, my brother and I always talk about, he's a fan of a bunch of different podcasts. And one of them is a running podcast. He's a phenomenal runner. He runs like super marathons. Him and I are quite opposite. Um, <laughs> but he listens to this one podcast that does a really rigorous book club. And they do read it together, and the audience reads it, and then cool. they do some, you know, email questions and stuff like that. I would love for us to be able to read 
along with all you guys out there in Italian America because it would be great. What could you do on a running podcast? Don't even begin that conversation. I, who how, the heck knows? How, I mean, how could you? How could you even run? That's you my should bring, You should bring your brother as a guest. I mean, like. Like, was it sneaker buying? I, don't, I, have one. No idea. I, mean, I don't yeah. know. Heavy breathing. I don't know. I love him to death, but we're very opposite. I'd much rather like a scotch and a cigar uh, than a marathon. So, anyway. I like both. Not marathons, but. Marathon's scary. You I run? Like, yeah, I like to run. Do you but run? But I also like scotch. Do you put chariots of fire while you run? <laughs> no. no. Yeah, you'll never find Pat and I doing the marathons. I don't think that that's all I like to do a marathon. You want to do a marathon? Yeah, maybe that should be our goal. Oh, I like I'll that. I'll see you at the finish Do it with Dolores. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't going. I ain't going in for that. Yeah. With a glass of I'll be there waiting for you. Yep. Uh, All right. So, you want to get us started on this first? Yeah. Let's ep- get started. You know, the first criteria here. Let's I'm being good, aren't I? You're being you good. are. You're doing I a great job. Like, We're proud of you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. All right. Uh, they yelled at me so much before this. You have no idea. <laughs> That's a lie. John beat me over the head with a book. I did. held me down. Uh, what I think school. is, you're actually just getting the hang of it and becoming. You're really becoming a professional at this. Wow. Thank you. That's what I think is happening. Yeah, that you're able to do. Can I get like a little sticker? Yourself, can, but you give also me, can you give me a sticker? No, you don't want. If you, if I was myself, you'd have to take me off here. Before we talk about the, the beginning of our Italian American story, uh, I think it's important that we just set a little bit of the tone, statistically and numerically, of who we're talking about. When we talk about Italian Americans because it's really kind of staggering the numbers. And sometimes we've talked about this on different shows, but it's good to reiterate today. We are the seventh largest ethnic group in the country. There are 18 plus million of us. Some demographers extrapolate out to as high as like 25 million people with some Italian descent and Italian ancestor. Uh, but in terms of self-identification, people who wrote Italian or Italian-American on the, on the line under ethnicity in the census, 18.2 million in the last census, 18 million in the census before. So it's actually going up, the self-identification. Which when is was a, the last census? 2010? 2010. 2010. And which is amazing. Yeah. Because, I agree. you know, th- that, to, to take the time in, I mean, I didn't take the census. Um, I'm sure a lot of people marked a bunch of different things or didn't mark it at all because it's a weird optional category, like this idea of ethnic race, whatever. Um, but for 18 million people to actually take the time to write yeah. either Italian or Italian American, to me, is just so That should blow us all away. Absolutely. It does. It really so that does. that number is higher. Yeah. Exactly. Than 18.2 yes. million. Yeah. Considerably, I think, and that's that's the amazing thing about that is if you take the immigration right in the years between eighteen twenty and two thousand four, five point five million Italians came to the United States over all those years. That's an incredible amount of people, and to to grow into this community of probably twenty million over the time is very significant. And what we're going to see in the, in the course of these episodes is is the earlier points. Between 1820 and 1869, only like 22,500 Italians came to this country. Between 1870 and 1880, 46,000. And between 1880 and 1914, over 4 million people came here. I have said this time and time again. The biggest hole in Italian-American history is the crowd that came before 1870. And I feel that academics have given it no attention because... They all kick off with the Great Migration. Yes. That's like, it's, like, it's like that's when history began. But they were like, well, in 1905, then people came to our town and X part of America and began to come and, and whatever. Well, all right. If we're going to correct that oversight, I think we have to start at the beginning. Um, let's really start where it all starts, right? And I don't want to talk about the celebration of Columbus Day because that is another five episodes on its own. Which on we want to do at some point. Which we have to do. Yeah, we have to do uh... But. Obviously, our people are at the root of the, the early history of this continent. Columbus discovers America in 1492. You have Verrazzano, Giovanni Cabotto, or John Cabot, Vespucci. You have so many Italians that come here to explore the interior of the country over time. You have Italian um, Jesuit and Dominican missionaries who's, who uh, go to so many different parts, everywhere from you know the, the northeast to California and the southwest, and you know, we have this weird attachment to the early exploration of the continent because of all the Italians that were involved. Of course, there was no Italy, and none of them were working in the employ of any of the Italian right. states. But I do want to talk for a second about... Because this was before unification. Because it was before unification, and none of the minor Italian pre-unitary states were going to pay for this stuff. I don't want to talk about Columbus and that controversy, and, and I know it's going to be hard for us to avoid it, but I do want to kind of talk about, you know, 
we as a community, if you're really digging into history, have used these explorers as a sort of sign of pride for our early contributions. But I always argue, like, they don't really have much to do. Like, we've done so much more as Italian-Americans now. It's, yeah, almost, but, can, it's so I, far back. But no, like, stop, it's, stop. It's like no, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> stop right there. That's exactly why did we hang on to them? Because they were acceptable to Anglo culture. That's I true. totally agree with that. That's because true. Columbus, they could accept Columbus, they could accept Farazzano, and, and the Wasps could accept him, so the earlier Italian-American organizations, and it's nothing against Verrazzano or anybody else, but they use them because you'll take this guy. He's yes. acceptable to you. Yeah. Because he's, a you know. In many ways, for me, our attachment to these early explorers, I get it. There was a lot of sense of pride, but it was sort of hoisted upon us because it was the acceptable. Yeah, outlet. sure. It got us into you know, the That's the creation the of Columbus. Yeah. Creation of Columbus is we want to show this country that we love it, that we belong, that we're happy to be here, but we're not going to put up a statue of Beppino. Yeah. But hold on. The fish guy or whatever. I'm just, you know, like somebody who's, you know, really indicative of uh, an average Italian-American. But you can't put the bricklayer on it. But how could you call call me Guinea? The only reason this country was ever founded was because of an Italian. That was the telegram. You call me WAP, and this is the guy who found this country. That is the underlying message, and it's not to separate from what Columbia, you know, that's a whole other discussion, but I think that the, the, the and the same thing was for the Catholic Church. Why the Knights of Columbus? Yeah. Why did Father McGivney decide in Connecticut, in New Haven, when he founded the Knights of Columbus to use Columbus? Because Columbus was a Catholic yeah. who was acceptable to waspy society. And hesitantly. I mean, there was many, I mean, look, the KKK wanted to uh, do away with any celebration of Columbus Years and years and years before this controversy ever came up. I mean, Columbus was there – was, there was anti-Catholic sentiment around Columbus, anti-ethnic sentiment around Columbus. The reason that all these explorers got so much good PR, if you will, in the beginning of the American experience is because they weren't tainted by any association with the British. So when this, this early you know, post-British, let's say, WASP Anglo culture is looking for heroes, they can't go to their – you know, the Magna Carta anymore because it's tainted with Britishism. So they've got to go, where do they go? They go to these explorers and they go to this idea of a new world. And they were the popular mythologies of the time, even before we got here, because they were not British. And so I always have this weird love-hate relationship with the history of the explorers because for me it feels like our community has so much more to celebrate. Yeah. It's, it almost feels like a, like a gentrification yes. of... Oh, good word. Our history, like you know, it's like we're trying to be. But the other, the, the other, know, the other message that uppity. when you think about it is, I, which I have often third, th- thought is, all these Italian explorers explored for another country. Yeah, that's the same thing. That's the point. Because you had a non-united Italy, right? And you had an Italy that couldn't unite. Even if it was a united Italy, they still wouldn't get behind. You know, it shows some of the kind of emblematic problems of Italy's self-governance is that Italians had to leave and go work for someone else. They really had to immigrate outside of Italy. I mean, Columbus was an immigrant. I mean, if you, if you go with the, and I know there's people who argue that he was Catalan and he was all different other things, but if you take the, the, the hypothesis slash fact that Columbus was, a, was from Genoa, he had to go abroad to get the support. So Verrazzano and, you know, for all those people who did, who were real pioneers in exploration. I mean, Portuguese explorers sailed for Portugal. Yeah. So I think that it, it just shows, and I think there's something maybe that wasn't really recognized at the time, but it does really, it is somewhat emblematic of, of, of Italy's need to, of, of, of migration. Yeah. Because of some, some of the very difficult things of trying to get things done in Italy, and which then, existed yeah, even then. Part, that was part of the political will of the other European powers to keep Italy separated. That was just they that. didn't need to do that from the outside. The Italians were very confident we're, doing it internally. We're really good. No one really had to... But I wanted to add a quick like addendum to my comment I just made about the gentrification, etc., which is, I think, however, these explorers, especially someone like Columbus, etc., remain important in as much as they are part of the story that we're trying to tell here, which is... At one point in this country, we were so not accepted, we were such outsiders, that we had to make heroes that were palatable. Totally, yeah, sure. totally agree with that. That's, that's yeah. now, in this day and age, the most important part of their symbology. Is but, that you, word? 
Yes. Symbolism. Symbolism. But, you know, I think that also follows up with that is, would a 1492 Christopher Columbus ever have considered himself to belong to the same national group as Sicilians or Neapolitans? Right. I ask myself that all the time. No, the he answer would, has to I, be no. No, the answer would have been no. So I'm going to go on the record as saying it probably would be no. Yeah. No, it would probably be no. I mean, let's take a let's take a real factual episode. Hoboken, for those of you who don't know, is a mile square city in, in northern New Jersey. And Hoboken has two Italian national parishes. Out of five parishes, two are Italian national parishes. Now, out of those two Italian national parishes, St. Francis and St. Anne's are very close to each other geographically. Why are there two parishes? Because the first immigrants to Hoboken were from Genoa, uh, part of which were Frank Sinatra's uh, maternal lineage. They set up St. Francis Church. When the southern Italian immigrants... Um, landed in Hoboken, predominantly from the Val di Diano, from uh, Monte San Giacomo and, and from Caggiano, the Genovese of St. Francis Church would not allow the Southern Italians to worship with them. The Northern Italians would not allow Southern Italians into their parish. So if the Genovese, if, if, if post-unification Genovese in the 1880s would not, did not want Southern Italians to worship with them. How removed could the concept of people outside of Liguria or outside of Genoa belonging to the same nationality as Columbus uh, have existed? Right. Yeah. I mean, if you go to Bari, right? Bari has a church of the Venetians. Yeah. Right? Same mark of the Venetians sure. because it was a separate national group. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, Rome has it. Rome has the church in the Apostles. of Venezia, the church right. in the Apostles. Right. The church of the Venetians. Yeah. And so I'm saying it's like the Italian Americans went and identified. With a guy who he probably wouldn't, or he probably only, if, if you said to Christopher Columbus, what do you, who do you identify with? Probably the people just from Genoa. That's going to be an interesting part of this whole discussion of our history is like the, the search for heroes. You know what I mean? Like the search for something to identify, symbols to identify with, because um, it happens over and over and over again. Uh, it's the constantly repeated message of, we've, we've accomplished things, please accept us. Yeah. But no one really researches... I've said this for a long time. Who was the first Southern Italian to come to New York? We don't. I don't. I don't. Have We've never answer. spent. I have a theory who it is. I have a theory. One of the first ones. Who? Antonio Trapani. If you look at 1785, St. Peter's on Barclay Street was opened, which was the first uh, Catholic parish. It was. Most people would think that it was the Irish who were behind it, but it wasn't. It was Spanish and French merchants oh. who were working in New York. And if you look at the founding parishioners. One is an Antonio Trapani, and the first Italians to come to New York were from uh, maritime communities because they already had a, yeah. a merchant marine uh, commerce connection with New York. And Antonio Trapani, my grandmother's mother's from Piano di Sorrento, and Piano di Sorrento, Sorrento always had a maritime relationship with England. They exported stuff with the New World, and that's like John Smith in that area. But, I mean, whether he was from, from the Sorrento Peninsula or he was from somewhere else, Antonio Trapani is a southern Italian name. And no one's done any research. No one's trying to figure out who were the first. I know John, really, and John, I'm not, I'm not just sending you sunshine because we're friends. I mean, you've done work into what, were the, what was the, the consulate, the consulate of, of the two Sicilies, yeah. the mission here in, in yeah. New York. And I think that's absolutely fascinating because... No, there's no real. I mean, you you have the expertise in this. I mean, what's the research well, I mean, that's been done with? No, I mean, there, there's really, really good stories out there. Obviously, the the first Italian American that anybody gives any sort of official credit to is a guy named Pietro Cesare Alberti, who was a Venetian. Again, a first immigrant from a maritime town because yeah. they already had connections with New York. And he's supposedly the first Italian ever to set foot as a citizen here or as a, a colonist here. In 1635, he came to what was then, you know, New Amsterdam, Dutch territory here in New York City. There's still a stone monument to him in Battery Park that I believe the Sons of Italy put up probably in the 30s. But this guy lived between Manhattan, Long Island, had a big family. They say that the name sort of evolved over time from Alberti to Albertus, Albertus, Albertis, and even the last name Bertus. And they say that every American with the surnames like Bertus, Bertus, Albertus, whatever – they can actually all trace their ancestry back to this one guy. So there's just boatloads of families around the country that come from this sort of, what do we call it, like patient zero of the Italian-American experience. Yeah, this guy, sure. Alberti, 
but beyond that, we, we, we see like certain highlight families. Um, there's the Taliaferro family that uh, also is from Venice that settled in Virginia. I worked with somebody with that last name. I wonder if this is like, and again, like these people came, they've been here forever. Most of them don't even realize they're from like these alpha Italian-American families. But there are some significant families that came over in the earliest uh, days post-exploration and like in the first settlements. And e- even in the earliest days of the, uh, of the settlement of this country and, and of the colonies that became the United States, there were Italians trickling in. There were obviously missionaries, uh, religious figures and things like that. I think what we often overlook is that even though we might not have been here in significant numbers, Italians uh, from all different parts of the peninsula at the time did have a great effect on the psychology and the identity of the founding of this country. And I always like to talk a little bit about uh, some figures that I, I do sort of think relate to our community in a little bit of a different way than the explorers, which are these um, sort of sons of liberty, uh, these Italian philosophers and political philosophers that, that did have a great impact on the identity of this uh, burgeoning nation. And I, I often think one of the stories that we forget to tell today is about um, Filippo Mazzei, uh, who's a Tuscan uh, political philosopher and doctor who becomes one of the closest friends of Thomas Jefferson. And it's actually Mazzei's political pamphlets where he talks about the concept of all men being created equal that inspires Jefferson to take the line uh, directly into the Declaration of Independence. I mean, you're talking about one of the founding principles of this country, uh, this idea of all men being created equal, comes from from an Italian. And Mazzei is a, a, a lifelong correspondent with Jefferson. He actually comes here, he actually brought all of the first grapevines that are planted and, and still grow and still produce wine in Virginia. And he, Jefferson was obviously a huge Italophile, but you know, as much as he was affected by Mazzei, is as much as Benjamin Franklin's ideas were affected by uh, Filangieri from Napoli, and really the idea of Rome and the Roman Republic, it permeates through so much of the early sense of this country. I mean, look at the, look at D.C. It's built to look like a new Rome. I mean, this idea that the U.S. was going to be this new Roman Republic. And, and, but that, and to jump in, I think that's, I wasn't there in 1890, but to think that, that, Exactly what you said, discovered by someone who would fall within the boundaries of a unified Italy. You know, architecture, uh, Greco-Roman architecture in the capital, you know, the independence narrative of the United States being uh, heavily influenced by uh, Italian philosophers. And you call the guinea a day going to wop. You know, you have the horrible Judge Magazine cartoons, you know, portraying Italians as really one step above an animal. Yeah. And you, how, how does American WASP society balance that with the fact that, you know, you, you, there's no way around it is your culture. I mean, your coinage is in e pluribus unum is yeah. not, is, is Latin. I mean, yeah. the whole, you know, you've taken so much from Italian culture and yet you call these people Guinea and Dago and WAP. Um, there's a guy, Angelo Bianchi's um, grandfather, I believe was one of, they were from Salicone, Salina. They settled in Newark. He was a pharmacist, um, did very well financially. And Henry Ford had had some sort of hand disease. And Angel Bianchi's grandfather came up with a cream that that had healed um, Henry Ford. And Henry Ford made a comment like, it's it's unbelievable that like someone of your race could have been the kind of guy that was able to figure out how to cure my illness. Rude. But, but I also think this is. Like, I mean, think. I mean, yeah. think. I mean, <laughs> that's, how, why, that's why a rude comment. I mean, yeah, it's insane. But this is what people don't think about when they think of Italian Americans, and you know, then that didn't end. In it's alive in a mo- lots lots of parts of this country. It's still very much alive. Yeah, that's true. And modern media I has agree. not modern media has not helped that. I but agree. I also think that this is then this is a topic we're going to cover a little further on in this episode, which is what I call sort of the great switch, because in the beginning. The trickle of Italians that came here were uh, merchants and professionals from, you know, the maritime republics in the north. Or Lots general. of musicians. Yeah. Church exactly, artists. Exactly, yeah. I mean, but they're all northern, right? The majority right, that's are northern. That's what I was going to say earlier. The majority I, I are statistically The majority, northern. but not all of them. There were southern Italians who came in. 
I think there was there's more than we acknowledge Southern Italian artists who came, musicians. Yeah. Um, but my point is like the, the the chance of interacting before 1890 with an Italian in this country for a wasp was going to be a Northern Italian on a high end level. Yeah. As a merchant exactly. or, a, a, and or an correct artist. Correct me if I'm wrong, but from my readings, that was acceptable. So Northern Italians were kind of celebrated and accepted. I'm generalizing, but I remember reading this at some point, and it was when the Southern Italians started coming that that's when Americans were really like. I, I, I have I have a theory. Yeah, because we're gonna we're gonna get to in the second episode of this this series the very racially driven quota system and immigration reforms of the 1920s that uh, that legislate against for the first time. And ethnicity, and that ethnicity is Southern European. So right. we, it was like Southern Italians, which you know, if you look, if you do any amateur genealogy, the majority of the records that you find at Ellis Island, in, in, on the Ellis Island website, they differentiate between Northern and Southern Italian. And and it, when, when these, racially, racially, and when these laws come out in the twenties, which we'll talk about later, it's only the Southerners that are quoted against. So I think that that's probably a, a big part of why that change in you know. Uh, sort of the assessment of Italians, uh, particularly because we go from a trickle to a title. But I mean, too. also, also, the northern Italians who were here, I mean, if you go through some of the reading, were somewhat dismissive of Southerners. Yes, sure. right. Yes, like you can't right. come so and you know, you, know, um, you know, even sainted Mother Cabrini, uh, and I'm, she probably was well-founded, complained about the, the Neapolitan Jesuits. They we're quick to articulate, oh, we're not them. Yeah. That's separate. And look, if, if you're listening right. for the first time, I highly recommend you go back in the archives of the podcast. Um, it's three episodes of the Italian-American podcast that we all did together probably a year or so ago. I think it's in the episode 50s uh, on the history of Southern Italy. And we're going to talk about that a little further along in this episode and throughout because 87% of the Italian-American community today, as we often point out, is Southern. So go back to the archives and listen to those episodes to understand a little bit more about why 87% of our community is, is Southern. And, you know, I guess it speaks to the point, you know, as we go along this history, we get to the absolute heart of the American foundation myth, the American Revolution, really the, the furnace that forges who we are as a people in a narrative sense. And you don't really get much connection from an Italian-American perspective to those events. Uh, there were 1,500 Italians who actively took part in the revolution and the, and the, the wars. There was Francesco Vigo, uh, who was a, a major financier for a big part of the Western campaign. Um, there was certainly participation, but not necessarily uh, a participation that those of us who have come here after the Great Migration, I think, find it easy to attach to. It's it's often um, a little bit of a gap in our history, and, and maybe in some ways in our ability to, to truly identify as being wholly American. I think that um, we were discussing before Argentina and how, you know, Argentina is like 52% of Italian descent. I think it's almost 60. 60, and it's going to one day be 100, because 95%, because with intermarriage, everyone's going to be a little bit Argentinian. A little and bit Italian. A little bit Italian. I'm sorry. It'll be a little bit Italian. And I think that we're looking here at the United States that um, through intermarriage, we're going to have every, I mean, especially in part, places like the East Coast, you're going to have a lot of people who will have a little bit of Italian in them. So I think that it's even more important. You know, this is going to become everybody's story at one point. Yeah, that's true. You know, and we're not there well, yet. if they identify with it. That's a great point. And I think if you think about it, Argentina does see itself as we're part Italian. That's just part of who they are. And I think it's going to be, I don't know, it's going to be interesting in 100 years if who's here and what's going yeah. on at the time. But how much? How many people are going to say, well, we, everyone here has a little bit of Italian in them? You know, when I was a kid, I remember learning about American history and knowing as an American who was born here with a dad who was born here and a mom who was born here and some of my grandparents who were born here, Two grandfathers served in the army, a dad that was, I mean, we had all of the checklist of Americanism. I knew I was an American, but I would hear these, this early history and I just felt like it wasn't mine. You know what I mean? Like I was always really aware that the American Revolution didn't belong to my ancestors. Yes, it was my American history, 
but my part of the story didn't start well, until I, later. I, I think the, the greatest example of that is what does Lumonti do? You know, George Washington crossing the Delaware so <laughs> Yeah, that's right. We take you know, it back over. And we try to Italianify an American piece of history. Um, if anybody out there doesn't know Lumonti or hasn't heard what did Washington say when he crossed the Delaware, he puts an Italian protagonist right at the heart of uh, Washington's crossing the Delaware, puts an Italian uh, in his fighting force and adds an Italian perspective and a, and a comedic one to it and uh, brings us to the heart of one of the most important episodes in the American Revolution. And I've always loved it. I think at the end of the show, maybe instead of our traditional exit song, we'll, uh, we'll play that so you guys can all hear it. It's, it's really funny, and I think uh, if you can understand Lumonti Italian, you really like it. But the point that I bring up here is a little bit different. My point is, um, I grew up with this idea, and I was always a fan of history, that our part in the story didn't start until we really got here in big waves, like, and, and my ancestors came. But what I learned as I got older, and one of the books that I really love, and we're going to talk about it on the book episode, is this book, Italian-Americans Before the Civil War by Giovanni Schiavo, who was a phenomenal historian of the Italian-American experience in the 20s and 30s. What I didn't realize was how much of an impact our people and the few that came here did have and a presence we did have. And it was, you know, it was not, let's say, proportionally significant to the other groups that were obviously here in big numbers, but we were here. And, you know, there's these great stories that I want to dig out and tell. That's that's part of the point of this. Like So one of the stories that most fascinated me as a Sicilian-American is the story of Salvatore Catalano. And I'm really proud to have sort of dusted the cobwebs off of this amazing uh, Sicilian-American figure early in our history. And I'm really proud of it because during my time at NEAF, I was able to work with the White House Historical Association to do um, this great program on the history of Italy and the White House and its effects on the White House and on the, the diplomatic um, sort of efforts that come out of the White like House. That. Yeah, that was a good, yeah, you were, we were NEAF at the time, right? No, I was. Oh, you were there in, as the media. Yeah, I think I was there as media. It was pretty good, right? Yeah, it was nice of it. And we published a really interesting book at the end of the symposium that's actually still available on the White House Historical Association website. And this whole effort was led by uh, Anita Bivacqua McBride, who is a NIAF board member and a really dear friend. It used to be the chief of staff to First Lady Laura Bush and just a passionate student of, of history. Um, and, and in the course of putting this thing together, we all started throwing around ideas. And I mentioned Salvatore Catalano. And it was just kind of a spark that was really taken up by the then chief historian of the White House Historical Association, a gentleman named William Bouchon. And it really became a, a passion work for him. And he wrote this amazing article about Catalano, which unfortunately went on to be his last major work of, of history. Uh, he passed shortly thereafter. And I really loved the idea that we were able to tell this story across so many platforms because it's an amazing story. During the Jefferson administration, you've got a world where the young United States is sort of just breaking out into mercantilism. We've got a very, very small merchant marine that is desperate for trade with the European powers, this burgeoning American economy, and shipping throughout the Mediterranean, uh, shipping of all nations, is being harassed by pirates from the Barbary Coast, which is the modern-day coast of North Africa. And none of these countries will stand up to these pirates. Everybody's paying them bribes to keep the shipping lanes safe. Obviously, the U.S., as young as we are, cannot afford to pay these bribes, and it's really affecting our economy. And Jefferson is the first leader in the world to stand up and say, okay, no more of this. We're, we're not going to deal with this. And he sends the nascent U.S. naval fleet uh, to North Africa uh, to fight a war against this force that nobody else in Europe even wanted to approach. And obviously, if you're going to fight in North Africa, the most logical ally is the former kingdom of the two Sicilies, right? Sicily is a natural jumping off point for any campaign that's going to happen. And so Jefferson, through his diplomatic corps, approaches 
Ferdinand I of the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies and is given this early alliance uh, to use the port of Syracuse for the U.S. Uh, Marine forces as a supply center. And Ferdinand sends a mixed force of Neapolitans and Sicilians to uh, ally with the U.S. in these battles. And so early on, the most important ship of our very small navy, the USS Philadelphia, runs aground and is taken into port in Tripoli. And the fear is that this incredible piece of naval technology is now going to be turned against our forces by the Libyans. And Lieutenant Stephen Decatur, who is leading this naval force, decides that he's going to undertake this incredibly daring uh, suicide mission to actually go into the port of Tripoli and destroy this ship before it can be refitted and turned against us. And so his forces are joined by these Sicilians and Neapolitans. And Catalano, a local Sicilian, is the navigator. And he convinces Decatur that the easiest way for them to get in there unseen is acting as a merchant ship from uh, Sicily. He dresses everybody up as uh, seamen. He hides the American Marine forces in the dark corners of the ship. And in the middle of the night, he uses his knowledge of the port and the local languages and local customs to convince the Libyan defenders that his ship has been damaged and needs to come into port uh, to be fixed. And as they get in, he sounds the call and uh, the joint U.S. and two Sicilian forces pop out of their hiding spots. They board the Philadelphia. They're able to burn it to the ground and avoid uh, any casualties and make their way back to Sicily and then eventually back to the U.S. when when we're victorious in the war. And this is a huge upset win for this tiny little nation. And uh, Catalano is considered a national hero. And he actually comes back to the U.S. with Decatur. He's uh, lauded by the president, by uh, all of the dignitaries of the country. He ends up moving to the U.S. and becoming the head of the naval shipyard in D.C. and lives out his life there as a sort of local hero. Decatur goes on to incredible fame for his success in the mission. And Catalano is actually eventually buried in Washington, still buried there, and uh, his descendants still live in and around the area. But nobody talks about this first major international victory for the U.S. military, at the heart of which is this really humble Sicilian navigator. And, you know, the, the ties there, the alliance there, what it meant to the early country is, is often lost. As a matter of fact, as far as we could prove in our research, the first two Marines ever buried overseas are still buried in Syracuse, Sicily. I mean, this is how absolutely fundamental to our early history this story is. And I just fell in love with this story, and I've been really proud to be able to bring this and other great stories back out into the historical records. John, all this is just in your head. Yeah, I know. <laughs> He's good. You know, listen, can you do me a favor if you're out there? Please write in. Please write in. I've told I'm this. I'm like looking at, at the desk. He should like, be is in there, a, John, you should be an Italian-American an anthropological is there, academic teacher. Is he teacher. reading from a book? I no, love this. It's just in his head. But let's go back. It's amazing. Let's go back to the story that we came here to tell because there's so many Italians uh, like Catalano at the heart of our story as a country that just don't get recognized. I mean, you think about the U.S. Marine Corps band. It was founded by Sicilians uh, like Venerando Pulizzi who were brought here uh, by Thomas Jefferson and, and formed the heart and beginnings of a great tradition in the U.S. Marine Corps band. But I, I don't think we feel – I don't think that the Italian-American community felt that they had a piece of the pie of the American American history until World War II. Yeah. That's I fair. mean, World War One was World War One was complicated. There were a lot of Italian Americans who fought in World War One. A lot of recent Italian immigrants. Italy was an ally. Some guys fought, so you know, that Italy had the restrictions about returning if you didn't participate in the war. But wait, wait. Before we jump ahead of ourselves, we have to talk about what is probably the formulative experience in American history. So, the Civil War is is to me this like great. Um, birth of American identity in a lot of ways, and this this, this change in American identity. And I think that our you know what always impressed me about the American Civil War that 
the United States was used in the plural sense in, in writing and literature. You'd say, oh, the United States are a part of North America before the Civil War to afterwards where it was the United States is a part of North America. And that's, that's like, to me, the Civil War has that great sense of the, um, the melding together of this country, redefining of this country in so many ways. And I always loved that we had a, a, a place yeah, there. And you know, an interesting, and I just talk about continuities, an interesting thing about the American Civil War is there's a handful, I think there was like 10, 12 of them left, veterans of the American Revolution. I mean, it was not that far removed. Yeah. It's only about a 90-year difference yeah. from, which is shorter than our removal from World War I right now, as we're taping this. Wow. So it was not that far back in the common history. The American Civil War follows on the revolution. I mean, look, at it, the, the revolution doesn't end until the 1880s. You're, you're talking about, you know, an 80-year difference. It's amazing how we get further and further away from the Civil War and we, we don't appreciate what it means. And I've always spent all this time for digging into the Italian fingerprints on it. You know, one of the major figures, and we can go all day about whether we like him or not, in Italian history is Giuseppe Garibaldi. And I think that it's really interesting because just like Columbus had a huge cult amongst the early Italian immigrants, so did Giuseppe Garibaldi. And he was a Freemason. That helped a lot. No. I'm not going to... No, but I mean, America... No, but I'm saying, but I'm saying yeah. is that in, he was acceptable. Yeah. You know, the same way the Italian Americans try to spin someone who was acceptable. Freemasonry, I guess yeah. is the correct word, was so part of American society that, well, he couldn't be that bad of an Italian. He was a Freemason. And he, now again, another Genovese. Um, for those of you, I'm sure most of our listeners know a little bit about Garibaldi. Genovese, uh, seaman, revolutionary around the world, fought in South America, it, political refugee from Italy, uh, from the kingdom of uh, Sardinia. And he came to live here in the 1850s. He came to live in New York on Staten Island and came to live, amazingly enough, with Antonio Meucci, who... Invented the telephone. Who invented the telephone. And... Neither of those two are on your outline. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> We've been good. Uh, don't go, don't go lost in chestnuts, lady. Continue. No, no Meucci, no, I know, I screwed up the outline. We're a little bit off track, but Meucci... Uh, the inventor of the telephone, right, living on Staten Island. He's a candle maker on Staten Island. Garibaldi comes to live with his Italian compatriot, which, by the way, Alexander, you know, Meucci gets... Think about it, the, the inventor of the telephone was making candles. Isn't that amazing? Well, he, he gets screwed out of the patent for the telephone, and Alexander Graham Bell gets the Canadian patent first. It was only like... They should have been calling him Ma Meucci. <laughs> yeah, so Meucci Labs. Meucci Labs. But, I mean, like, uh, he, it was only... Not that long ago that the U.S. Congress... I just got that. I'm sorry. <laughs> like Ma Bell? Is that what you're it ripping off? Uh, I get it. It took now me a second. It? Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, Bell Labs? Mayuchi Labs? It yeah, it should have everything. Right. Got it. But he, Congress did finally give him credit a few years ago, actually, that he was the official inventor of the telephone. He got to it first. But Garibaldi goes to live with him, right? This is before the Italian unification. And uh, he becomes a darling of the... Uh, sure, because he's he's against. Sure, he's a he's a. Let's think of his time in South America. Right, he's a modern Republican Mason, right? Sure, he fits what they would like to see Italians. Yes, and he's very active in the social scene here in the city. He, you know, he's a character. Right, he's walking around in his red shirt. There's all these stories. He's like the original Che Guevara. He's walking around in a, in a South American poncho and he's unkempt and he's you know he's a character. So Garibaldi's super integrated into. The American psychology in the years before the war and his heroics, uh, if you want to call them that, in Latin America are, are famous throughout the country. And it's interesting to look at the parallels between Italy and the U.S. during that period of the Civil War. Because as we're approaching the Civil War in the United States, Italy's approaching its risorgimento. And in many ways, a lot of historians argue that the two sides kind of line up interestingly. Like this, you know, Union, Northern, Industrial very sort of secular republic and the south which is a much more traditional agrarian in the u.s yeah i think there's a lot of revision to be held, held with that i don't think the south was more religious and i think the south was in some ways and this is not dealing with slavery the south the south was much more tolerant of catholics and religious minorities i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that 
earlier generations painted very black and white pictures of scenarios. But I think that the, but like her international context, a lot of the writings that I've read from that time, um, particularly from the Italian perspective, right? The Italians saw themselves in the United States and Lincoln and his Lincoln and, and Cavour and Garibaldi and these figures fighting for like a, a new secular democracy, uh, a new world order, a new world order. And the the South in both countries being more agrarian, more traditional, more rank based, if you will, more hierarchical, a, a, a sort of a vestige of a more imperial history. And, you know, you see it in, in the wars during that era fought in Mexico. You know, the revolutions of 1848 that, that were this new world order versus old world order, the, the Civil War and, and the Rigiorgimento are in many ways a part of that. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I think that – I think the South – the South's slavery ideology was based in economics. Yeah. We, and, and I think that it played out. The South lost slavery and the South had taken that because their, their whole – Economy, the riches of the economy is based on slave labor. I think that the, the difference with the South of Italy, South of Italy was an ideological state. And I think that the, I mean, you can't say that the North came to to economically improve and liberate the South of Italy. Well, that's a horrible myth that we've, right. that's well, a I, think, horrible I hope myth. we've dispelled and I, in our and three I episodes earlier. I think that the idea, it was an ideological, the South of Italy, in an ideological sense, in an ideological sense, was some of the last vestiges of the medieval world. Yeah, in many like ways, the South, and in marriage. many ways, the South of the United States was it, it was sure. A, it was and a vestige of serfdom, yeah, and the Russians exactly. the exact yeah. same way. Correct. Yeah, I agree with that. And so Garibaldi becomes this this sort of again this hero of the two worlds, and very popular in the U.S. to the point where President Lincoln, because don't forget the Civil War breaks out eighteen sixty, and Garibaldi is already back in Italy for the beginnings of the Risorgimento in eighteen fifty nine. But he's also seen as a great military tactician at the time, right? Uh, one of the uh, inventors of guerrilla war and the concept. Lincoln writes him and invites him to uh, take up uh, the position of general in the Union Army. And there's different opinions on why he says no. Some people say, you know, the, the, the pro Garibaldi will say he was too occupied with Italy, although the timeline's, you know, unification sort of coming to its close by then. A lot of people say he. Um, demanded that he was given uh, full leadership, a full full command, uh, you know, the the of the entire Sassan. Union Army. Yeah, Sassan, yeah, yeah. But what he does do is he does he does create. Tutonien. Yeah, I'll take yeah. <laughs> Either I'm in charge or I'm not. I do that sometimes. Um, but he does create the Garibaldi Guard, right? So there's Garibaldi Guard in, in the Union Army. Um, I never knew he actually created the Garibaldi. Yeah, I just thought they took the name as like no, he, I mean, he didn't come back and do anything with them. But they, he did like send some regiments from Italy. Yeah, I mean, he did espouse yeah the abolition the of slavery cause. Sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and he's they, celebrated by Lincoln credit. because of what he did in in terms of the unification of Italy. Yeah, I think I think a lot of unionists see parallels between yeah, the two. I, I think and, and, and in South America, in so, freedom fight. I'm sorry, give people um, a reference. So, 1860, the Civil War starts in America. When does it? When did uh, the unification of Italy? 1861 begins the Civil War in the United States. Okay, so I think was he off? I think was he off at the command at the beginning of the war? Yeah. So give give context. Where's unification in that timeline? March 17th of 1861 is the last okay. death now. And at the end of April of 1861 is the beginning of the American Civil War. So he basically kind of would have had six kind of weeks coming off. to its end, and the other exactly. one's just starting. Okay. So he, you know, his whole idea that he's occupied with the freedom for the rest of us. Of but, yeah, I'm, I, the, voice, I, I, I'm gotta, the voice for the rest of us. No, I, I gotta in jump this in. conversation, I gotta jump in with this is that <laughs> the one who does not have an encyclopedia in her head. Garibaldi. <laughs> Garibaldi. Let's go back to Garibaldi. The United States, besides what he had done in South America, besides what he had done in uniting Italy. Besides being a Freemason, England had painted the two Sicilies as a regressive, tyrannical, religiously obsessed, backward state. And it played into the myths, the incorrect myths that, that white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism had of, of Italians and Catholicism. And Garibaldi was seen as... The man who slew and destroyed that old world order. And for those of you out there who may want to argue this point, before you do, go back and if you haven't already, listen to our prior episodes on the what we call the true history of the South. 
because I think we've done a good job of uh, dispelling a lot of these myths because a lot of these myths in the English-speaking world came from this British hatred of the two Sicilies, a lot of which is born out of their desire for a monopoly of the Sicilian sulfur manufacture and the desire to have a client state in on the island of Sicily in the middle of the Mediterranean. So uh, British geopolitics and their needs in the Mediterranean do a lot to push this English language uh, slandering Slandering. of, of the Southern Kingdom. So I, I want people to go back and listen to those episodes because... And I think part of Garibaldi's popularity was he was the man who destroyed... Oh, big time. The, the great hero. The Catholic, the great hero. The yep. Catholic theocracy yes. that was he ended the, the medieval. He me- ended the he ended, medieval world. He ended he the medieval world, correct. Masonic, sure. Illuminati figure. Illumi- and I think that that's a big part of why Americans accepted Garibaldi, you know, the way that they accepted Columbus was he was painted in colors that they found acceptable. Yeah. He he is the perfect figure for the time in the United States. And, and these parallels that are drawn between the two countries, I mean, if you read the the, the writings and the correspondence, uh, and particularly the view from Italy of the American Civil War and the view from America of the Italian Risorgimento, they really do see themselves parallel. It's really fascinating to read. And when we get to our episode, uh, three or four episodes from now, on our book list, I have some great stuff to recommend. It's a real deep dive into this and some of the work by Howard Moraro on the uh, on the relationship between the two countries during the time. But um, yeah, a lot of parallels and a lot of interesting identity going back and forth. And this Garibaldi Guard that's created is the 39th New York Regiment. They they march and fight in in the red shirt, in the Bersaglieri hat with the the feathers, uh, the plumes of cockerel feathers. Uh, that the Bersaglieri still wears today, the Piemonte's Bersaglieri, they march under uh, a tricolor flag that says uh, God and Liberty. They're made up of Italians, Hungarians, uh, Europeans of all different kinds. They eventually become actually the European Brigade uh, as as it's harder to replenish the Italian numbers after battles. But uh, they have their place. And interestingly enough, there is even a group today of reenactors who carry on. The, they're Italian-Americans who carry on. A lot of them on. are Masons. I know, and I don't know all of them. I know a Garibaldi guard reenactor is also a big Freemason. I wonder if he even thinks about the history of. I, I think that, like George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson, Garibaldi is a is Masonic a, hero. A Masonic hero, sure. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that being the case. But I mean, you see them sometimes. I mean, if you're out there in the Garibaldi guard, that's not the case. Please advise us. I, and I don't know. I'm just saying the one person I know who's, who's very into being in the Garibaldi guard is also very into being. Uh, Freemason. You see them. I think you see them all over the city. They march in the Columbus Parade. They sort of carry on that the the uniform and the identity. And it's interesting because it's again another piece of like proto Italian American history that our community has taken up as a well. I think that symbol. It was easy to celebrate Garibaldi because the North South tension really takes off once you have internal migration in Italy. You know, so Garibaldi. And, and the Garibaldi guard and this and this this fingerprint here, you can even go to the house that he and Maiucci lived in today. It's on Staten Island. It's a museum run by the Sons of Italy. And I love the idea that in like 1910, I think it was, maybe earlier, the Italian-American community actually built a temple, a secular temple of granite over this house. It They left it to crumble and it had to be taken down, so it's no longer above the house. But uh, it was like a huge pilgrimage site for Italians as they started to come in here, this this home of Garibaldi. I think it, I think... Um I think there was an undercurrent in Italian American culture, uh, because you know we always I think we always seem to paint the at least the two of us like unification was not championed. There were plenty of people in the South who were very happy with the idea of the fall of the Bourbons, sure, who had been working for it for a very long time, and who had espoused the values of Garibaldi, yeah, um, or the 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 values that have been attributed to Garibaldi. Um, I don't know if they're the disparate, but I think that's 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 a clearer uh, clearer explanation. I think a lot of those people. I mean, look at Sacco and Vanzetti. Sacco and Vanzetti were uh, anti-clerical, and I think of some of the anti-clericalism of unification was shared by some aspects of the Italian immigrant community, and I think that that married well with the canonization of Garibaldi. Garibaldi received a secular canonization. Yeah. So, you know, my wife runs to church and she burns candles 
in front of that saint. That's all nonsense. You know, my mother was like that. I'm a modern man. I'm going to make my pilgrimage to the Garibaldi house, yeah. to the to the secular shrine of this man who redeemed us from superstition and the, the tyranny of the church. I think there was an element of that. Oh, big I think we don't talk about that a lot. And I, you know, like, I mean, like, I think that this is a trend in our in our shows. This idea of southern identity and something that I think people who listen to us are, are going to encounter. Um, but it, it it deserves study because it's what leads to us being here and, and yeah, why it's going to evolve. You know, I think that I think that it's not static. It's not frozen. I think that Italy's identity, or America's identity, world identity, personal identity, concept of communication, all everything changes. Within our own time, we're, we're taping this in 2018. It's going to give our perspective of this moment of who we are and of our experiences. And I think that later on, there could be a different review and a different, and we don't know how history is going to change, a different perspective of what our perspective is. You know, we always talk from a Southernist perspective, and, and it comes up on the show a lot. And I think if, if Garibaldi and the Garibaldi Guard and that Italian presence in the North during the Civil War is an unknown segment of the history. A, a, a way more unknown segment is something that I'm really passionate about that I kind of want to do a deep dive episode into one day, which is actually the presence of Southern Italian troops in the Confederacy. And it's a really interesting history. Garibaldi has at this point conquered Southern Italy, and he's got a lot of these, uh, of the official Bourbon army in, in prisons, and he doesn't want to release them because they're already going into the mountains to fight the 10-year unspoken civil war and he he gets a correspondence from this which was incorrectly labeled br- brigandage i hate to even use the word i don't even want to dignify the word brigandage but yes that's that's what they use in italy and he's in correspondence with this louisianan named chatham wheat who fought with him in in part of their battles in south america he was another uh, adventurer and uh he writes to garibaldi basically saying like i'm forming a troop in louisiana on the confederate side can you send soldiers? And Garibaldi actually comes up with the idea to send bourbon soldiers, prisoners of war, to New Orleans. So these troops in their bourbon uniforms, full equipment, get put onto like a prison ship and don't know where they're going. And they get released in New Orleans and they're signed up into the Confederacy. And they fight in the Italian Legion on the other side. And uh, many of them end up staying here and... Uh, becoming part of the earliest uh, southern Italian immigration to New Orleans, which which was always a southern immigration versus the other parts that were primarily northern. It's a great piece of history that I really want to dig into because it's just imagine fighting one war, getting put in a prison and then on a boat and coming out to fight another war in a country that you know nothing about um, and nobody ever talks about the presence there. So, you know, the Civil War is an interesting early part of our history. We, we sort of touch it a little bit. But it's really after the Civil War and after unification that our numbers begin to swell. And I think we would all argue that that's because of the imposition of northern laws and colonization of the South. Um, There were obviously problems there to begin with, but we start to get these big numbers. And this is where the big switch happens, where the majority of the immigration coming to this country is no longer northern Italian merchants, but southern Italian peasants. And that's really where we're going to get into in our next episode with this huge rush of millions and millions of Italians between 1880 and 1914 that really redefines who we are in this country. So for those of you that have, have listened uh, to this first part of our history, I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. And I hope you come back next time for part two, Italians in America, 1890 to 1941. Where are we going to eat? I'm Walter Young. Fight as a famous battle cry But what I really want to know Ain't written anywhere Hey, what did Washington say When he crossed the Delaware My vagin' of Reed Et tenga nava My vagin' of Reed No tenga modan Oh, Martha, Martha Wish you were here tonight Oh, Martha, Martha No pasta vasola tonight